the American Theatre Wing, and the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts bring you the American Theatre Wing's Guide to Careers in the Theatre. This session, The Scenic Designer. I'm Ted Chapin, and here with me is Tony Award-winning designer Robin Wagner, who has had many shows on Broadway. And I should say that we have a few toys over here, which we'll get to in a while. Um, but I'd like to start by simply asking, um, scenic designer, um, why not costumes and lighting? Have you ever done them all? Or? Yes, actually, when I first came to New York, uh, the very first off-Broadway show that I did here, I did everything. Uh, scenery, costumes, lighting. I painted it, and I built it. And I did the construction and uh, all the painting. And uh, the entire budget was $500. I see, but, but you decided of all those, the ones you wanted to focus on was the scenery. Well, I, I found uh, very quickly that, that you could only focus on one. <laughs> and uh, there were a lot of other people around that wanted to do the others as well. So it worked out pretty good. Oh, that's, that, that's yeah, great. Yeah. Um, I was reading a, a couple days ago the wonderful book that Joe Milziner wrote several years ago about scenic design. And he has a wonderful introduction in which he talks about the old, old days when scenery was literal. Uh, you would open up a book and a play and it would say in a, a Victorian living room and somebody would put some doors and some furnitures and stuff like that. And he credited Robert Edmund Jones mm -hmm. as saying he was the first one who really sort of said this could be, this can be an art. We could have lofty uh, goals and aims here. Mm -hmm. um, and from that came Joe Mazziner and, and other... Yeah, he created actually something uh uh, which was a, a kind of a different kind of realism for the stage. Uh, what Joe Melziner used to do is uh, to take the essence of the scene, and then he would evoke the set with a few lines. I mean, some of his more wonderful things, like uh, the uh, uh, streetcar named Desire and Death of a Salesman, they were sensational evocations of uh, time and place, but they were never literal. Uh, and uh, the literal kind of scenery that uh, had been before Joe and, of course, before uh, uh, Bobby Jones, was uh, trying to create the place, uh, and, uh, which is now called Fourth Wall Theater. And uh, they still do this, of course, in television and in film, because their the naturalism is very much a part of the event. But the stage is uh, not necessarily a naturalistic place. So d does nobody do, do naturalistic scenery anymore? Oh, sure, yes. Yeah, I think we all do it, but uh, not as much, because uh, it's been discovered that uh, in the theater, you can do things which don't have to be naturalistic, and the audience can imagine the set. You know, so uh, and th anything that the audience can imagine is always better than anything that you can build. So, uh, and if the writer is clever enough, you don't have to do anything, as in Shakespeare. Yes. Now, where the the first ten lines, for instance, of Hamlet, uh, tell you the time of day, tell you the weather, they tell you everybody's name, and they tell you where you are. So they could do that on a, on a stage that had no scenery. It was just platforms. Oh, that, that's great. When, when you are working on a, on a new show, let's sort of start at the, at, at the beginning. I assume that you are sent a script? Yeah, the very first thing I get usually is a, is a call from the director. Not the producer? No, curiously enough. I think that the first thing that the producer does after they acquire a script is to hire a director. And the director, in turn, uh, usually has a design team, uh, the scenery, the costumes, uh, and the lighting designers. Uh, and uh, they're used to working with them. And you build up the shorthand and the understanding of what you like and what you don't like. So it's much easier to work with someone that you've worked with before. So uh, that's the second, I'm sorry, the second kind of uh, connection uh, to the script. But uh, then I am given the script because I think 
you have to understand what it is that you're about to do uh, and be in agreement with the director's vision of the piece. And so if you read the script and it says it's in a Victorian living room and you read it and you think something in this script and the score, if it's a musical, tells you that you think, although it says Victorian living room, you think it might be more abstract or something like well, that? Well, yes. You see, that's, that's the great freedom that comes between the director and the designers, is that you can offer that as a thought, saying, why do we really need a Victorian parlor? Why can't we do this like uh, Peter Brook, for instance, might do it, who's the English director, right. uh, on a carpet with a few pieces of furniture? Why do we have to have a room? And the director might say, well, we don't really. And so then you're already on the path and the discussion has begun. And uh, most directors have a pretty good uh, vision of what they want, but they're always open to other suggestions. So it's, as, as with everything in the theater, it's a collaboration. Total collaboration, yeah. And you don't get too attached to things. Like, as a designer, I never really try to uh, offer any kind of finished sketch or finished work at the beginning because you can uh, put so much work into it and so much effort that you, uh, in a sense, are married to it and you can't give it up. So uh, we go step at a time so with the director in the room. And yeah. So the, the, then, then the next step is, obviously, you've read it in your conversation with the director. Yes. Um, and then when, when does drawing or sketching or conceiving come into it? Well, that's a little bit down the line. Usually, I'll read the script uh, five or six times. So I know it at least uh, in a talking way, so I don't have to refer to it. But I also break it down, uh, which is very helpful, in a way that uh, what do you really need to do the show? Uh, and uh, what you can discover on some shows, uh, for instance, uh, after two years of working on a chorus line, we discovered it didn't need anything. So we had the mirrors that, that uh, exist uh, in the dance studio, and we had the black void that every dancer is used to because they're used to working in black velour drapes, uh, and a finale, which came later. Uh, so it sort of designed itself as a kind of uh, uh, evolution of what was necessary to do the show. And in the process of three workshops, we discovered nothing was necessary, right. except a white line across the stage on which the dancers would stand. But that was an, ex I mean, your, your collaboration with Michael Bennett was extraordinary, and you did several shows with him, and yes, obviously, I mean, I've, I always assumed that you got to a point where you spoke in shorthand, if you spoke at all. I mean, yeah, you spoke oh, no, in one we, line. we would speak, because he would, uh, uh, Michael would always call you in the middle of the night and say, well, could that piece turn upside down and go around? <laughs> As <laughs> and, a true director and yeah, choreographer. Uh, yeah, now, he'd be inspired by simple things. But he always used to say, well, uh, you make the instruments and I'll play them. And I always thought that was exactly what happens with a designer and a director workshop. You because, make the instruments uh, yeah, and you, I'll play you them. create the instruments and I'll play them. Uh, and that, that's always worked for me. Uh, and also the idea of being able to take a script and remove everything else uh, that, that exists there. I, I have directing students uh, up at Columbia. And uh, we start with scripts and we break them down and say, what do you really need to do this show? I mean, maybe it needs to be a table that they sit at. Um, maybe they don't have to sit because the energy is always higher when someone is standing. So a part of the creation of uh, the stage set is to remove everything that in any way impedes or slows down the action. That's, that's interesting. So uh, part of that, I would imagine, if it is a traditional script or, or musical, it's the number of scenes and where the author has said this scene takes place in this location. Exactly. Right? That's where it starts, so right? It's, it's called... Uh, Site-specific. Site-specific. Yeah, that's a term from the business, but uh, all that really means is we're going to show you the place in which this action takes place. Right. Uh, that's been changed quite a bit since Bertolt Brecht, 
with some of his writing because he would simply tell you where you were or he would send a little sign across that said a wall, a canyon, a castle. Which do you prefer as, as a designer to get? A script that says a wall or a script that says... Well, it doesn't matter to me because I'm going to do it. You're going to do whatever you want. You're going to ignore it if you don't like it. That's no, good. but I think it's good to, to know what the author's intent was. So, uh, and for instance, Tennessee Williams, when he wrote his uh, scenic descriptions, he was very, very elaborate uh, in describing uh, what they had arrived at in the course of rehearsal and during the show uh, itself because uh, it will have evolved into what the script then needs to uh, breathe on the stage. That's very, very interesting. So he, he's distilled the basics of what has come out of the collaboration exactly. with the designers in the original production. Exactly. And that happens quite a bit. They used to, when they printed a script, ask you for a ground plan. Right. Uh, but now it's, it's some kind of intellectual rights problem going on. So yes, you, you oh don't yes, give I, that I, anymore. I'm sure you know about this. I know about, know this. about this. I know about this. <laughs> um, did you start as a visual guy? Did you draw? Or, or oh, I always drew as a child. Yeah, that was the only thing I really felt comfortable doing. So, although I, I read a lot, I was into fantasy, I guess. Well, but we lived in a very remote place, like, like on a lighthouse in uh, central California. Oh, wow. So it was... Uh, and you came to the theater. You didn't go to Hollywood. That's great. Yeah, well, I tried to go to Hollywood. I couldn't get a job. Oh, good. We're, we're the beneficiaries of that. Thank you. Well, I hope so. <laughs> but at any rate, it was... Uh, uh, drawing was just something, was like eating meals and so on. And, and I never really thought of it as a part of the theater, but, uh, and all the way through high school, I, I didn't go to theater, I didn't attend it, but uh, I guess it was right after I got out that um, I was doing some volunteer work, curiously enough, at a small uh, theater called the Theater Arts Colony, which was in San Francisco. Uh, and it was the home of several modern dance companies and the San Francisco Ballet. Uh, and so uh, I started off actually by running a light board uh, because they needed somebody to run a light board. Well, isn't it you know? always the way? <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was interesting because um, I began to work with um, a contemporary dance company, a modern dance company, that um, was into some, but pretty, I mean, I don't know how profound it was, but it was pretty intense work. He, this one fellow was doing a, uh, a production, a dance drama of Crime and Punishment. Wow. So, which was a full evening of modern dance. And uh, he didn't have a designer. So uh, he said, well, why don't you come and build us some stuff? So I did. And I would think starting from a dance company, you would have to be very sparse in what they would. Extremely I mean, sparse. They need a lot of space to dance. Yeah, by the way, and it still applies, you know, because in musicals, I seem to do a lot of musicals, um, the stage has to breathe because you have to have the intensity of a very small, very secluded space downstage if you're doing a scene or uh, an acting scene. Uh, it doesn't live as well in a big open space. But then it has to retreat or pull back to allow the company to dance, which is a part of the musical theater, which is uh, one of the major uh, parts. So that, uh, that uh, designing for the musical theater is allowing something to uh, breathe, rather like an accordion. Oh, that's great. So. And there's a little Kiss Me Kate lurking in, 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 in a while, which I think I'm, I'll ask you about how, oh, how sure. it breathes and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but back to sort of basic design stuff. If you were, vis if you were visual mm -hmm. and then getting into design, obviously part, part, of, part of your job is to see the script, figure out where it is, but also there are demands made in terms of the puzzle. I mean, there are, if there oh, are sure. a, lot of, a lot of different scenes and stuff like that, when in the process does the puzzle 
start in, right at the beginning? Or? Oh, yes. Uh, well, th there's some preliminary parts of the puzzle, actually. Uh, there's the, the part of the puzzle called the producer, <laughs> right. you know, and, and the producer has always a budget. Right, which and is never big enough for you, I'm sure. Hardly ever, right. but sometimes that's the test. You know, if you, if you really can do something uh, and you're really onto the right part of it, you can do it for nothing. As it, as it turns out, it doesn't require a lot of money to do something very beautiful, as you've seen many times on the stage. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is also the venue, the limitations of the theater, of the stage, because some theaters, as you probably know, have fly chambers above them. Flies meaning that you can take a drop in and take a drop out, and others don't. And particularly if you're working in small theaters, there's very rarely a fly chamber. So you get used to uh, doing very minimal solutions, uh, and that's one of the tests of being able to find out what the play is truly about. So uh, th th there's, there's, uh, the limitations of the theater are great. And isn't, I, I mean, I, I think we should in inject here that even though people feel that Broadway is the height of something in the theater, uh, the limitations of the Broadway theaters are a lot more remarkable than people think, yes? Oh, yes, they are. In fact, there are some of the smallest theaters I've ever worked in are on Broadway. I mean, uh, one particular theater, uh, the Ambassador, actually goes into a point in the back. Well, it's, it's, it's cockeyed on, it's a sort yeah. of triangular on the, on the square. Yeah, because these theaters were designed, uh, you know, in the early part of the century, uh, of the, the last century, when uh, the maximum seating was, uh, was the thing that the architect uh, had placed before them. How many seats can you fit into this room and still have a stage? I see, so stage was secondary, seating always. was pri primary. Always, yeah. Uh, but they're always, uh, all of the Broadway theaters do have a fly chamber, right. uh, and which is a carryover, by the way, from the 19th century, because uh, the, the ropes and the batons and the shivs and the wheels and everything that makes uh, drops go up and down and scenery move up and down are uh, leftovers from the old uh, sailing ship days. Right. And all the early stagehands were sailors, you know, so and they had to tie knots, and, uh, and they still do, if you want to be a part of that. Uh, union. You, you better know how to tie you, knots. You have to tie knots. Pay attention to that, everybody. Yeah. Wants to pay <laughs> and also, aren't the, the fly galleries of different height in, on the Broadway yes, theater? Yes, they are. There's, there's a couple that are very high, like the Virginia Theater, so almost 80 feet into the grid. What they call a grid is above the stage. Right. And you, um, you did uh, City of Angels there, and I, I assume yes. you, you designed knowing that you had that much space to go up to. We took every inch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. As a designer, when you, are, when you do have a specific Broadway theater, I'm sure part of your job is to fill every space you possibly can. I know. Can. You, you, you do, do uh, a lot of very humbling sort of kneelings before the producers asking them for larger theaters on occasion. <laughs> but the director also has a lot to say to that. Uh, and in many instances, uh, they simply won't do the show until the right theater is available. Uh, because uh, you can crowd a big piece, an epic piece, into a very small theater and it won't live there. So the space is very, very important. It's the oxygen that the set breathes. But don't they sometimes say to you, we're in this theater, you make it breathe. You yeah, make yes, it breathe. Yeah, I had never had any phone call from uh, Bernie Jacobs, who used to run the Schubert organization for his death. And I was working on a show up in uh, Boston called uh, The Red Devil Battery Sign, which Tennessee Williams right. had, had written. And uh, Bernie was trying to get, we were going to the Schubert Theater, and Bernie wanted the Schubert Theater for a chorus line, which I had also designed. Right, so you were conflicted. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. But anyway, he called, and it was one of the call in the middle of the night and say, can you fit the uh, Red Devil battery sign into the Broadhurst? And knowing what chorus line was and how exciting it was, I said, you know, if you want, uh, Bernie, we could put it in the Bijou, you know, which was the smallest theater on Broadway at the time. 
And the truth of it is, is that you can, if you know in advance, uh, manipulate the space. You can also, uh, your writers become very valuable this way because the, they don't require as uh, large spaces. If they can get a small theater, it's amazing how quickly they'll rewrite, right, you right. Know, as opposed to no theater. So it's, it's a give and take. Absolutely. Um, is, uh, is scenery design something that, for which there's a clear training ground? Or are oh, there yeah, many yeah. different ways you can tra get well, trained for it? I think there are many ways. Uh, the clearest way uh, is that there's uh, several wonderful universities where you can go to graduate school. You're always required to have some kind of an art background, which I did have. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I, I went to the California School of Fine Arts, which was in San Francisco for a couple of years. and So I was interested in uh, art and design and, and painting and so on. But you can go to school for stage design. And uh, for instance, Yale has a wonderful department and has had for, uh, New York University has an excellent department. And uh, over the years, Carnegie Mellon had one, Northwestern, I think they, most of them still do. And, I and sort of lost touch. You know. And the designers who came out of those programs are, are Broadway designers or oh, regional yeah. designers or, a little, or both? Or both. And opera and I don't want to exclude any of the other theaters. No, 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 because each uh, aspect that you just mentioned of, of design uh, has the people who love that. Right. Some people love opera. Right. Uh, some people do you? want to. Uh, I've done a lot of opera. I don't love it as much as I do musical theater. All that space is you don't. <laughs> well, that's, you have lots of space in an opera. Yes, but, you but, do. but also, am I right that certainly the, the Metropolitan Opera here, it is a repertory theater. They change. The, yes, they do. So you can't. You have very strict rules about how much you can. Very strict. I have a, happen to have an opera at the Met, uh, the Barber of Seville. Uh, and uh, when it plays, you know, it has X number of lines which are given to you in advance. And when you design, lines you know being, that. being flies? Yes, or? each fly. I mean, so you can have maybe five or six different backdrops. And um, the set that I did there happens to use the turntable, uh, which they make available. But that's a big deal putting in the turntable because it's stored upstage, has to be brought, put down into the floor. Uh, it's a lot of requirements. So, and if you're working in rep, that's very difficult. Some opera houses, on the other hand, like the Vienna State Opera, uh, has seven stages. There's a stage to each side, and there's three stages downstairs, and they have uh, 15 trucks that come to the theater every morning because you have one opera in rehearsal in the afternoon and another opera performing at night. So, uh, so there's freedom for Broadway where it just stays in one place. Great freedom, I would say. And, but I do love opera. I, lo I love to, to go to opera. Uh, I just, uh, it's very hard to work in because uh, it is a rep system. Yeah. Um, out of the schools, if somebody has come out, out of one of the schools, do you, as a working designer now, accept apprentices? Is there, is, is, is the apprentice program that I know, I mean, not a program, but I know that designers used to take on apprentices and a lot of those apprentices became designers. That's is that right. still in, in, in? No, it really isn't. Now there's a union. And if you want to design on Broadway, uh, you have to become a member of the union. Now, the union has uh, 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 an examination twice a year. And is it only scenery union, or is it no, scenery? scenery, lighting, and costume. All together in one union. Yes. And uh, they also uh, represent uh, film and uh, television. So if you become a member, the, the local is uh, 829, uh, which is now part of the IATSC, which is the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. IATSC. Uh, and uh, IATSC, right? uh, You know that one well. Yes. Uh, but at any rate, if you're a member of that, you can work in any medium. Uh, on a professional level, but you do have to take that exam and qualify. And most of the schools, the graduate schools that you would attend for any one of those kinds of design programs, uh, you would be uh, uh, coached and, and somehow uh, helped to uh, approach that examination because that determines whether or not you can really work 
uh, in what we call uh, the Broadway profession or Hollywood. Uh, on the other hand, you don't have to be a member of that union to work uh, in regional theaters. Regional theaters have a very different contract. So that would be a good place to recommend somebody wanting to be a designer to work in the regional oh, theaters? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but also, you do real plays, yeah. and, and it's not just about having a success. Right. Uh, I, I was at uh, Arena Stage uh, in Washington, D.C. for three years, and uh, doing classics. You know, I was very fortunate and, uh, in San Francisco at the Actors Workshop, and we were doing classics. So uh, great you learn, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great training ground. What, I'm curious, what's on the exam when you, to, to join the union? Curiously enough, uh, they'll uh, assign you a play, uh, but you're not allowed to design it until you get into the room. Now, this changes every couple of years. This is the one that I was a, a judge on. They didn't invite me back because I passed everybody. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> not the idea. <laughs> no, but, uh, but they're all working today, probably. Most of them. Right. I think anyone that goes into the profession with a serious uh, point of view is going to end up working in it because there is room in it for lots of people. And as the entertainment business grows, the room grows. And also, always demand. Also, if, if I'm right, all kinds of different people. I mean, it's open to women and it's open to... Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was, it's always been open to... Uh, to women, and it's, uh, there's no, I don't think there's any lines at all in the theater. It's just one of those great places where that's something, anybody can work. Right? That's something we hear time and time again, and it's very good in this day and age you know, to hear that. So, so yeah. back to the, the exam, you're given a play, and then you, in a room you design? Yeah, you're allowed to read the play before the, uh, but then you have to approach it, you have to make a ground plan, right. showing where everything's going to be, and, uh, and you have to have a, a point of view, because uh, uh, then you're uh, asked to do one elevation, which is a drawing of the play from the front. But it's to be done in scale. And the scale, uh, as uh, anyone is interested in building or, or construction or architecture will tell you, is uh, uh, taking a foot of space and making it only half an inch right. or a quarter of an inch. And that tells you what scale is. And by doing things in scale, you can draw everything. And so you need to know all those basic elements. You need to know certain things like uh, sight lines. Mm -hmm. I mean, which people can see the whole play. Right. And, uh, and, and where the critic's going to sit, the most important. Well, that's very important, too. <laughs> <laughs> but sight lines are extremely important because no one in an auditorium can see everything. Right. And the people are way on one side. They can only see this side of the stage and the same for the other side. And there's a V that you draw. It's called a golden triangle. Uh, and anything that's in that V can be seen by everyone. So anything important that takes place in the play has to take, has place, to in take there. place there. That's and uh, you design for that, even though the room may be square. Right. The Let's sofa's in the V, right? Very good. <laughs> Once this exam is passed, then how do you get a job? Uh, you, you apply. Uh, you, you write letters. I get letters all the time. And I hire, everybody I've ever hired uh, has uh, come to me through uh, mail. Or, uh, and I interview people. And I have a staff, and uh, they'll interview people if I can, if I'm not there. Uh, and uh, we talk to people, anyone who writes to us, they get either a response or we'll interview them. That's and if good. they have a portfolio, uh, like I get letters from other fields, like architecture and stuff. I was going to ask about the difference of how much architecture plays in, in design. Well, it, I think it depends on what kind of design. For instance, if you're designing for dance, it doesn't play at all. You know, it's uh, drops. A lot of drops. And yeah, <laughs> and it's soft, soft drops, of course. Uh, but uh, it's not so much about architecture as it is about uh, painting or sculpture. Uh, and I, I like to say sometimes that the scenic design is not really about painting, architecture, or sculpture. It's really about theater. And uh, you don't have to, I mean, some designers, I, I can remember 
uh, Peter Burry in, in England, who's no longer with us, but uh, he, he used to make incredible scenery. And uh, he would just do it with objects and, uh, and blow them up. And uh, he'd have great assistance. And right. so you don't, and painters, by the way, Mark Chagall uh, did uh, operas at the Metropolitan. And he wasn't trained as a set designer. Right. But he did a lot of wonderful, as does David Hockney. You know, he was a great painter, but was never trained as a set designer. But are some painters not good designers because they think differently? Yes, I think so. I don't, I don't, I, I'm not going to ask you to name names. <laughs> well, no, I won't, but, but it, it, it's absolutely true because a painter's about painting. Right. And some painters allow actors to take place in their paintings. So it's a very different point of view. But I, I also imagine you, as a scenery designer, are called upon sometimes to do painterly sets. Then someone will want it yes. not architectural. And yeah, and um, I don't get called very often for those. <laughs> but I well, don't, but that's... <laughs> and th is that because you, you've gotten known as somebody who can fit a lot of... Well, I do. I, but I do, uh, that I, if, I, if I'm known for any specific thing, uh, I think I, I serve the play, but no one gives me like simple plays. They give me very complex musicals usually. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I've, I've learned how to do over the years is the mechanics of the theater, how to get something to arrive on the stage, and uh, how to move it to another place, and how to make the transformations in front of your eyes, where something just changes into something else. And what's automated and what's oh, yeah. pushed I mean, around, and what's, sure. what three things come together and make magic at one given. Exactly right. And those, to me, have always been very interesting, because I always think of those as events in and of themselves, as opposed to place to place. I always think of seeing the, the scene as being an event. How, so the transitions are as much about the scenery as the scenery themselves, right. it, itself. Yeah, I learned that from Michael Bennett, who uh, the first show we did together was uh, Promises, Promises. And um, he didn't really have any choreography to do. <coughs> Excuse me. So he worked on the scene changes. And he used to choreograph from change to change. And other, of course, directors do that. Susan Stroman does it all the time now. We have some things in the producers where it's totally choreographed from scene to scene. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, no, no, that part's exciting. But uh, it's um, the, I guess you would have to call it, uh, uh, I don't know what, the dynamics of right. set design, uh, because they exist. What, what kind of specific courses are taught in the graduate, in the graduate programs about design to prep people for this kind of stuff? Well, the very first thing they give you is drafting. Drafting. And I have an assistant who, for instance, teaches drafting up at uh, 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 Purchase in, the, in the, the, the state. SUNY Purchase, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, they have drafting for uh, first-year designers. Then they have drafting for second year, drafting for third year. And then you learn how to make models, and uh, little quarter-inch scale models, because uh, sketches are very deceptive. And uh, most directors, they don't want a sketch, because uh, a reasonably good artist can make a fabulous sketch. And what you, the scenery will never look like that, because they're, you know, they're using lighting and they're using what kind of dramatic license? Right? Do you, when you get to a point in <coughs> a production when you, when you're ready to t to design this, the scenery, do you do a sketch first to show? Never, never. No, no I don't draw do at all anymore. I used to love that. I used to love to sit and make a sketch, and it's like you could you could walk in it yourself, and and it would be wonderful. And you'd have to pick a specific moment, but right. you can't pick a specific moment. I see. I once uh, heard a director say. Uh, that we would start with the obligatory moment in the play. And uh, I didn't know what that meant, so I asked. The obligatory moment is the impossible moment to stage. Uh, in other words... We'll start there and move backwards and forwards from it. Yeah, because once you've solved that problem... 
But it's also that not a, a director saying, I can't solve this problem, you designer help me solve it? Oh, they always say that. And they're, I mean, because they're not primarily visual, they're, but they are of the imagination. So uh, uh, Joe Papp uh, said to me once, uh, who ran the Shakespeare Festival for so long, that the uh, big problem in Hamlet is the gravedigger's thing. If you can solve the gravedigger's thing uh, without a trap, or without two guys standing in a grave, you've solved the, the scenic problems in the show, which is absolutely true. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So uh, remember, we did one down, I did one with Kevin Klein at the public. Uh, and the way we dealt with that is we had the grave off stage, and the gravediggers came in with a wheelbarrow with a pile of earth and a skull sitting on top. Right. <laughs> so it was, you know, just that's a, a solution. solution. Exactly. That's a solution. And I think in many ways that's what design means, is solutions. That's because uh, all the givens are there. Right, and you have to find the creative solution. Yeah. Even the budget is a given. The, the space is a given. The text is a given. The director's concept is a given. And then the actors, uh, the first time they open their mouth, you realize what the style of the show is because if it's naturalistic or realistic or if it's farce. So those are all givens. That's then, great. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Kiss Me Kate. Sure. Um, Kiss Me Kate, which is playing on Broadway now, yeah. um, pr produced by Ro Roger Berlin and Roger Horch, are the two Rogers. The two Rogers, yes. Um, two guys one who have experience, Roger Berlin more, I think, from Broadway than, than Roger Horch, but they were producers like the old days, right? Oh, yes, very much so. They had a clear idea? Oh, yes. And they, they, I remember uh, working for Roger Horch on uh, Crazy For You. And uh, he wanted to produce it. He said, I'm not, I don't want to be a producer. I want to produce one show. Crazy right. for you because I love Gershwin. Uh, this uh, Gershwin. And I had Gershwin's piano was in our house when I was a child. And, <coughs> and uh, he hired a good director, uh, Mike Ockren, and um, sat us all down at the table and says, well, I said, well, what do you want to do? And uh, he was totally supportive all the way. And, and Kiss Me Kate as well? Kiss Me Kate is just, well, Roger Berlin is the same right. way. I, I think all the, the really great uh, producers, of, uh, past and present, uh, which goes back in, in my experience to David Merrick, who I thought was wonderful, they are hands-off for the artists. They, they hire the artists Important. and they leave them alone. And then they come to dress rehearsal. And, they <laughs> and then they, they wreak havoc. <laughs> now, the two Rogers are not like that. They, they wreak havoc because it's, it's not... They're just they're more attuned okay. to who they're hiring. David would always hire names. Right. You know. so I remember when Promises, Promises, he hired uh, Burt Bacharach, who was the hottest composer in the country. Right, the fact that he'd never been in a theater or something. Never been like in that. a theater. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, we got up to Boston, and the show was on the stage, and, and uh, we saw the first preview, and everybody was sitting in the auditorium, and, and uh, he started screaming at Burt Bacharach, poor Burt, you know. I mean, I don't think he really cared because he was so big right. know, as, a, as a personality. But uh, he wanted a new song in the show, and he wanted it in the second act, and he didn't want any of those expensive orchestrations. So Bert and uh, uh, he went and Hal went back to their hotel, and they wrote a little song called What Do You Get When You Fall In Love, which Jill O'Hara sang on the guitar. It stopped the show, and it became number one on the charts in the country. So, and I mean, it solved the problem because it had no orchestration, so it was cheap. Yeah, and it was in the right place in the show. I love it. And he called it. That's producing. Now, when Michael Blakemore came in to Kiss Me, Kate, um, obviously Kiss Me, Kate was, is a revival. It's, uh, yes. you know, it's a show that, that existed. So some of the things we were talking about earlier in terms of time, place, and stuff like that yeah. were built in, I assume? Or was oh, there, no, was no, there absolutely. He wanted to do a really, uh, uh, he wanted to do the script as it was written. And then, that, granted, there were some changes, and he, he brought in... Uh, John Guerra, who did some uh, adaptation right. of another Right, uncredited, I would, in John's defense, I think, but he did a good job. Yes, and I think perhaps he 
preferred that anyway. I, not, I couldn't say that for sure, but, but whatever he did was great and it helped the show. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Michael Blakemore uh, had a very strong point of view from the director's point of view. He said uh, in every production he had seen, the scenery was very unreali unrealistic. It was insubstantial. And when you'd go backstage, it was like a, the backstage corridor was a drop with uh, pipes painted on it and doors. And, and he said, uh, I want to uh, uh, examine the reality of a backstage world. I mean, uh, the, 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 the part of it which is like a back wall made out of brick and the part of it that you can climb up and down and you can hammer on. And, uh, and so he had a, and then he wanted the scenes to be absolute fantasy and from period. You know, it's a very painterly. Right. Well, there's a, a whole play within the play yes. that notion. So that could be painterly. The play within the play could and be really painterly. He didn't even want backings on the doors. So when oh, you go into a door, you're just looking backstage because it was a flat, and he wanted to remind you that this is a play within the play. I see. And the rea the reality is they're in in the backstage. Exactly. I see. Yeah. So there's there's two so, sets in uh, in this show. But that was that was music to your ears. You could understand what he was talking in about. In a minute. In a minute. You know, and also I, I could bring something to that because I understand backstage. You know, I've spent my life there. Let's pull this model up because oh, okay. this is a model of, of the backstage corridor in, in Kiss Me, This Kane, is I the believe. backstage corridor, yes. Okay. okay, this will be kind of fun. Now, did you build this model or do you have assistance to do it? Well, that? I have assistance, and they, which is another way, by the way, where you can go into the, the theater this way because uh, your assistants start off doing all the things that I started off doing, which is building little models like this and uh, also doing the drawings for the models. Uh, like, for instance, this one here. This happens to be the backstage scene uh, and the corridor. Uh, and uh, the way that this arrives in the space. Oh, this is one of those moments you were talking about where it all sort of comes together? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe you can help me. Sure. Uh, it, I'll show you these panels in the back, which are brick and have doors in them. They are actually the doors to the dressing rooms. And behind this, there's another level where you go through that door and you enter up on another level like this. Uh, but when this goes off stage, for instance, let me pull this out of here because okay. it doesn't belong here. Just don't look at that. Yeah, right. don't, don't see that. Uh, these pull out like this, okay? And at the same time that's happening, this piece here is flying up in the air, and these little pieces here are coming, are, off. Are coming off this way. Wow. You can just pull that off in there. It's a little there. more gracious on, in, in the theater, but it it's... It doesn't shake so much. <laughs> <laughs> and what the same thing fingers? happens, for instance, when you go back into this. Uh, this piece here is coming down to here. And this is the landing, and these come in to meet that. Uh, I don't know how... Well, we do. But anyway, you sort of get that, right? Uh, and uh, this little guy comes over a little farther. And, and so as and the actors can walk up and down and do all those same things that you could do if this were really... This is all steel, by the way. It's a, I was going to say that, that I, they're like people crawling up and down and dancing up and down yeah. and slamming the doors way up, to, up top, which... That's right. which I remember as an audience member thinking that is very solid because there's not, you know, it would, an audience would be made very uncomfortable if doors were, were things shaking, were shaking yeah. up there. And that was one of the requirements, for instance, when we drew the show up uh, to tell the show uh, and engineer a way that this can lock together so that it doesn't change or, or move in any way. Uh, and by the way, this is, this, the corridor scene plays about four times. Normally you couldn't do this much scenery for a single scene in a show. But this, we keep going back to the corridor. I mean, in, ter in terms of you couldn't justify the cost exactly. of it if you only yes. did it once. Yes. That's or the space that it takes, which the is space a different that it kind takes. of cost. I, I also thought, if we can hold this up here, this is a floor plan. It's a little, um, 
in which the, the scenery, the set that's, that has the model there is here on, on the floor plan. But what I noticed, which I think is interesting, is all the, all the rest of these things around the stage backstage, which have to, you have to find a place to put the other scenes while this scene is going on there. That's why I talk about the, off stage design. the puzzle. It must be, I mean. It, that's it. We designed that. And everything that's in that stage all night long in every scene is where it's going is defined on a ground plan so that it's, there's no chances. So ground plan and, and elevation sort of get designed at the same time, and if it it's, you can't yes. be that, I can't fit it on the floor plan, you will have to... It won't fit in the theater. Right. <laughs> it won't fit in the theater. <laughs> there are many people who have tried to disprove that. Yes. But as someone once said to me, uh, there's an old rule in the theater, is that two things cannot occupy the same place at the same time. <laughs> That's a good rule. And you really find that out quickly. But also, as you were saying er earlier, because since so many of the theaters on Broadway have very little backstage areas, yeah. um, the new backstage area that you and other fellow designers have discovered is called Up in the Air. Yeah, offstage, upstage. Upstage. Yeah, on the sides. Because so the grid is the whole backstage, but the only part that you're actually flying things is this center, 48 feet, because that's right. the length of those pipes. And so the rest is yours to do with what you want. So in the back corners, you can... You can we have uh, four levels high in, um, in the producers on some dressing room, not dressing room, but um, accountant's room units. They go up four high on top of each other, up to about 62 feet. And of course, when the actors come on stage, they're to look calm, cool, collected, yeah. and in the easiest place on earth. But all of this stuff is hanging over their head. <laughs> oh, but they're very good about it. They're used to them, most of them. Hazard pay doesn't kick in on no, a normal, day, normal <laughs> day's work. I don't think so. Um, so th this is, this, the scale of this model is what? This is quarter inch to the foot. Okay. So for each, this is a six foot person here. Oh, yes. And um, that's how you always tell how big things are. For instance, if I put this up on the second level here, which I don't even know if I can. Yeah, very well done. So uh, you'll see that that's Here's what a six-foot person looks like. And you have to worry about sight lines. For instance, if there were a second balcony in this theater, uh, if that person's on the third level, you won't see the top half of it. The golden triangle doesn't go for the up. No, there's level. another golden there's a, triangle. The triangle down, up and one. down one. <laughs> yeah. And I imagine that is different for every theater, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, you have to go in there and do that. But I also notice if that person is six feet, it looks like there's only about six feet four inches in between those. Six six, actually. Six six. That's pretty good. There's a six nine. It's very close. <laughs> six nine on the bottom, because that's part of a dance uh, area. Right. So they have to move. And if your apartment had a, a ceiling that was six feet nine inches, you would feel a little cramped. I oh yeah, think. absolutely. But you know. the magic of the theater is the illusion you don't feel cramped at all, because you're, you're also you're focused elsewhere. Yeah, and you're, you're removed far enough from it, you can get away with things like forced perspective. Uh -huh. Forced perspective allows you to do things that you, for instance, these little corridors are only two feet deep. Now, uh, no corridor is four feet deep. Corridor is like four, maybe five, never less than five, but, or six sometimes, but never two feet. But if you're going to get the dressing room and the, uh, everything else and Kiss and Me Kate on it, you, that all two feet is when you did the floor plan, that's all you could, you could do. Exactly right. Now, you also have another piece back there, which is, which is this oh, unit. Oh, yeah, let yeah, me the, just the, take this out of here, so, because uh, this is one of the things that we do, uh, the assistants do. I, d I did this a long time for Oliver Smith and Ben Edwards. And, uh, this is uh, this little piece, which is called... Um, the stage left entry, and it has the escape stairs and things that take you from above, and that's where the stage doorman sits. Right. And I brought along uh, a little model here of um, how this goes to another scale, this being a, a half-inch scale. So and you'll notice this one is painted, and maybe you can see the little telephone. Oh, it's very good. And the radiator. And, uh, and, uh, and th obviously this one came first, and then... then 
Exactly. Yeah, then we built, this is a finished model. Now, uh, we do these uh, because they're much simpler. They take a quarter of much, uh, I mean, less than a quarter of the time. And uh, if the director wants to change it, he can change it. At this stage, easier to change a much set at this than at this. And by the way, the very first ones, uh, which I didn't have one laying around because we throw them away, are just paper. But I they see. give you a sense of proportion, and you're able to explain the way it works. And, and I imagine you as a designer, when you first did this, you were surprised when you would see something like this on a stage. But the more you do, the more you can pretty much guess that what you this is going to look like. what it's going to be. But I can tell you also that I was never so thrilled in my life. It's the first time that I saw a model that I remember as a young designer. Well, I know on the shows that I've been around, when you, when you actually see it built, it's, it is breathtaking. Oh, yeah. It's like hearing the orchestra for the first time and seeing the costumes for the first oh, time. Oh, yeah. Now, and this, obviously this has been painted very carefully. Is this what you give a shop? Yes. Now, after, well, perhaps I should uh, put a drawing in here to explain the difference. Okay. Because before, uh, oh, yeah. uh, before we paint the set, actually, because all the models are all painted, and that's given to the scenic artists who paint the finished constructed set. But we have to provide the drawings for the constructed set. Yeah, before we get there, you, you could... Yeah, let me just bring this drawing out here. And, uh, it, whoops. It's okay. Sorry. Uh, you might uh, see from this, like I'll pull this little piece out here, because we're not going to use this anymore, that this is that little quarter-inch piece. You'll see that here and here. And those are the little lights above. Uh, I don't, uh, or if you, you want to reach in there, that, if you sit it right in front of that. Right, there it is. There, there it is. But these are the construction drawings that we do. That's where you use your draftsmen and your model makers, and then we have people just paint for us. And uh, this goes to uh, Scenic Studio, it's called. So, now, you had said earlier that draft, drafting is one of the courses. Yeah. I assume that at, at this stage, it, it, the sets get budgeted? Yes, this is part of the budget well, process, well, right? We're, yeah, we're budgeted actually before that. Before this, okay. Yeah, but what we try to do is conform to the budget. Once the drawings are set out and the shops give you an estimate of what they think it's going to cost, and they compete. There's always three or four shops okay. that are given a set of drawings to bid on. Uh, and and are the bids usually competitive, or do they, do they tend to... It's amazing how different they can be, okay. because some shops have different ways of of doing different things. Ah, they're magic. Yeah, or they have a whole big stash of wood that they, you know, got le have left over, or they'll have some something already built that they can adapt, so they can save money that way. Like, now, is, in, in that instance, I imagine you, as an artist, would would could say, no, don't reuse something from the past. I want a quarter inch, you know, but uh, yeah, but you don't get the into reality that too often. Okay, the reality. But they do of have the, They have the materials. They have the if they have the materials, they can save a lot of money. I see. Okay. And, uh, and because uh, there is not a lot of money to spare, I mean, uh, scenic production is very expensive because everything is handmade for the first time. And uh, as a consequence, it's costly. Uh, and the people, by the way, who actually build the sets in the shop, a whole other aspect of design. There are other people, uh, the technical supervisors and technical directors, who are able to take the drawings and convert them into working drawings. This is not a working drawing. This, this is a designer drawing. Okay. A working drawing would actually have all the measurements marked off. We sometimes, we'll give outline big measurements, but we don't give specifics. They redraft it, sometimes on computer, sometimes by hand, and uh, mark it out for each of the workers in the uh, but shop. That is a technical director who is part of your team or part of the, the show's team or part of the shop's team? It can be one of any of those. Okay. But the, <laughs> every shop has one. Okay. They have what they call a, a project uh, director, and they'll take these drawings and they will do the estimates. 
and then uh, they will follow it through. And you're in constant touch with them. Or the owner of the shop, of course, is very important. Like, for instance, uh, I work a lot with Hudson Scenery, uh, Neil Mazzella. And over the years, uh, was, they also developed a shorthand. But, uh, and you work with certain painters that, that you happen to know that uh, work in a certain style. And it makes it much easier to, uh, you don't have to do as much of this. So it's a shorthand also. Do the shops all have their own painters, or do some shops? No, they all have their own. But there's, uh, there's some certain really very good painters that will paint for everybody. You know, and, uh, and they're, they're, uh, there's one, for instance, Arnold Abramson, who was for years at Nolan's. He's down in Florida, and he's semi-retired. And, and uh, he does a lot of drops and things for me, because I know him so well. And he worked for Oliver. Does he come up, or do you send him, send no, him down? No, we send him down. We you send him down, but it can be shipped. That's great. <laughs> yeah, you just throw him in a bag. Uh, before you get rid, not get rid of this, to yeah. take this down, I want to ask you a, a question. This is going out on tour next year. Yes, it is. And it's going to London. Yes. Now, I assume, or maybe tell me if I'm wrong, are you going to have to simplify this for both yes, of those? Yes, absolutely. Not for London. Not for London. London gets the same show as you have on Broadway. But this is going to be one drop for the road, right? Oh, no, not at all. This, this, it just works differently. Okay. On, on the road, for instance, this, the back wall, which you can't see here. Let me go back to this other thing okay. here. Sort of uh, explain that, because it might help. Uh, when you do the road, uh, you can't... I mean, this is held up by elevator motors and everything under the sun. We've got computers and, and what have you. But uh, on the road, this is a floor unit. For instance, this piece that comes in and goes out is attached to these, and they just push them on as a floor unit. It doesn't fly. A solid unit. You're it's right. a solid unit. So you can still run in and out and do all the but same But then thing. something that's on the floor and the floor plan is going to have to go because... You bet. It has to live a certain place. Right. And so you simplify the show. Everything gets a little smaller. And the way production is done now, they have uh, what they call a bus and truck. Uh, and they have 14 hours to put the set up. Now, it takes us three weeks to put a set in like this. Three weeks. And then another two weeks to do the technical rehearsals. Now, why does it take three weeks? Well, because uh, when you hire a theater, it's stripped. There's nothing there. Um, and there's no lights. There's, you know, there's a grid and there's uh, counterweights, which is uh, how you operate that. But um, most often, uh, big pieces like this, for instance, that would carry uh, 12 or 15 people, are automated. So they're on a machine so that they, they can't miss, they stop at the right place. You can't do that. We only have four, 14 hours to put the show on. So the technical director person is the one who says, okay, the, the, that piece comes in first because it's automated. I mean, that kind of thing, right? Well, that, that, or the carpenter. Sequencing everything. It used to be the carpenter, and sometimes the carpenters have now become technical supervisors. And, but they're also they're a major part of the team that makes these things work. And the, the good ones are just constantly at work. I mean, just because they're always doing new shows. Right. And right. that's what they do. And they've learned to do what they've done, but obviously by experience. That keeps coming back around in the theater. But, yeah. but they could be carpenters. They could be computer nerds these days. Yeah, but they could be, but uh, they wouldn't have that responsibility at an early age. Okay. Like the computer nerds that you're talking about, there are a lot of them out there. I know. They're also called supervising uh, technicians. I don't know what they're called anymore. But, but uh, they are very good at keeping the account straight. I think <laughs> but uh, unless you have a really old season kind of grizzled carpenter back there that knows how to put the lines together and make it work. You're in trouble. Uh, you're in trouble. Right. But do you also use um, computer, uh, computer programs on design? We do on occasion. If it's a very complicated uh, set, in other words, it has a lot of moves, and some shows you do, like chess, for instance, had 45 moves. I mean, the scenes would last for a minute, and uh, you would just keep going. And what happened uh, finally is we had to put it on a computer because we couldn't keep up the paperwork 
We couldn't make that many ground plans that fast. And the director, Trevor Nunn, was changing the show as he went. So we finally hired a, a, a computer guy, and all he did was do ground plans. You know, so can this work? Can this work? Yeah, and he'd pass out 10 ground plans, and the next day it'd be all different again. So. So what do you do during the three weeks when this is being loaded into the theater? I'm usually... Are you on vacation? No, no, I'm, I'm in rehearsal. <laughs> uh, I spend a lot of time in rehearsal uh, because the show is growing and changing, and, uh, and also there's a lot of questions that come up. I was going to say, process. and you, being in rehearsal, you can sense some that maybe haven't to yes, told yeah, you, where's that person going? Yeah, exactly. There's no door there. <laughs> <laughs> but usually the directors that I work with, they, they know a lot about the stage. And, uh, uh, and they have a sense of all of that. But I go because maybe there's something I can offer, or maybe there's something that's not painted yet or not finished building. Uh, there's a shorter way or a better way to do it, uh, and, uh, or to make it fit into the theater in a better way. Because uh, everything is restricted by these little uh, six-foot by eight-foot doors so that you load in. That's right. The other thing, that's a, that's yeah. a good point. That, the, those are the doors through which all the scenery comes into a Broadway theater, no matter how large it is. It's yeah. got to fit through. What's the size of those doors again? Well, six by, well, there's seven by eight. But seven each eight. one of these panels, for instance, uh, nothing can ever be bigger than eight feet because you might have to send it in this way. Right. But it's always about getting into the theater and getting it into the truck. And the trucks are 48 feet. And so uh, nothing can be uh, anything longer. And, and so people who think the theater is full of art. Well, this is very practical, very practical stuff. And, uh, but what I, what I admire is the fact that the, 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 you as a designer, you've got to start with an artistic notion, an artistic idea, and then clearly the puzzle maker and the, you know, has to kick in because you are, you are the one who has to make it all work. Yeah, you're responsible of the, uh, when finally, if it doesn't work, Everybody looks at you. What do we do now? Yeah, what did you do wrong? Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, I always turn around and try to find somebody else to look at. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this but what kind of problems do you deal with when a set is loading into a Broadway theater, usually? Mostly uh, unforeseen space problems, um, storage problems, which we've designed and laid out, but uh, someone will have come along and put all the sound equipment up on the wall so you can't fit that piece there anymore. Or they need the offstage space, which is traditionally used for props, as a dressing room. Uh, right. Unanticipated so are you, are you allowed to be the diva that says fix it, or are you the one that had to come up with a solution? Well, I have to go first and apologize. Time. <laughs> so I'm out there at the front trying to keep the guys from falling dead because they're working from 8 in the morning till midnight. Right. So, uh, you and, know, and, it's and it's all custom, what they're doing. They've everything. never done this specific thing before. They've done these no. jobs on other, but they this wall has it. never been in this theater in this set. No, and, it, and it's never not had to shake before. So. Right, right. So, yeah, it's, there's plenty to do. It's a full-time job. Do you like the advent of computers in set design, or do you think it's, um, it, when all is said and done, it uh, would have been better the old way? Uh, you know, there's no way to tell, because it's only now developing uh, a style. People are using it to design with now, and it's a style of production which is not as personal as the old way, but in a sense, uh, it's more in tune with the audience, because the audience has grown up not only on computers, but on television, on the, a kind of flat space, a fourth wall. They, they have that uh, in their sensibilities. Where the old theater sometimes was in the round, sometimes uh, projected out. The Greek theater, of course, was all in the round. Right. Uh, so uh, the ancient theater and the ancient plays have all been written for this three-dimensional quality, where the modern ones are much more uh, in touch with television sensibilities, uh, which means that the computer is of great value 
So the younger designers, I think, are much more involved with the computer than I am. But uh, I see the value of it. But, but also, in, in a theater, obviously, the lighting designer is influenced heavily by the computer. Yes. What you are in terms of automation. Um, yes. Is that, uh, is that a good thing? And is it a collaborative? You know, do you work with the lighting designer? Do you share the same computers, or is it all different? No, it's all different. And uh, the equipment they use now, even this, uh, only 10 years ago, was uh, totally different. Now everybody's using very lights which are rock and roll lights, right. because they can be pre-programmed and go to a position and they can change the color. Uh, and it's a very different quality of light uh, than uh, I grew up with. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I can see uh, where it's valuable to the show. Yeah. You know, so, uh, also, we, we, we didn't touch on, on costume design, but I, one of the questions I wanted to ask is, obviously, there's a palette to this show. And I, I imagine very early on, you, you coordinate with the lighting the costume designer in terms of the costume. You starts know, with the costumes. Starts with the costumes, yeah. So you coordinate your palette to the costumes. Yeah, because um, my, unless it has to be a very specific palette, uh, because I'm using, like, for instance, I have a, one of the drops in here is, uh, is an old uh, 15th century uh, drop. I don't know if you, you can see that. In front yeah. of here. And um, that has a palette. It came out of a church in Siena, you know, and uh, it had a palette to it, and I wanted to use it. Modified, of course, uh, and of course uh, the costume designer on this show, Marty Pakodinitz, he loved the palette, so he built his costumes right, around the palette of this painting, which we found, which was uh, uh, perfectly correct for the show within the show, you know, which is an old kind of. Uh, uh, Italian. Uh, but it, it's interesting too that, that that's research. I mean, you found this because you had an idea that you had something. To, you, oh yeah, I wanted to have things that had no real perspective, and, and the painters, the Veronese school. Uh, they always paint it in planes, because it's pre-perspective. But this is part of this, the play within the play, right? Yes. So it has no attempt to be real. It's, it purposely looks like uh, fake scenery, like a real right. painted drop. And it's sometimes hard to do that, because people go to the theater with a different set of eyes, yes. where they think everything is real. D uh, did you help select the costume and lighting designer on the show, or did they I, also? I usually, uh, um, the director selects them, of course, right, but, but he always discusses it. And there's usually a team. I mean, there are people that, that yeah, and they work together. And uh, we had a great time. Uh, Marty Pakadinitz uh, was on The Life, which Michael Blakemore also directed. See, and, did, and you did the, the yeah, and I did the sets for that. So I um, think this is yeah, and it's, it's interesting how it's sort of um, you evolved to another place. Michael Bennett did that with Fiona Aldridge, and Theron Musser was the lighting designer, and myself. Uh, and by the time uh, we did the fifth, uh, sixth shows with Michael, it was like we all knew what everybody else was up to. And he would call and say, okay, I want to talk about a new show, come yeah, sit around. Yeah, he always talk. did that. He would call, and I remember when we did the ballroom, he called us all three to his apartment, we all had dinner, and he showed us a videotape of a, a Queen of the Stardust ballroom. And uh, he said, we're doing this, this is our next show. And we said, well, why? And so on. He said, because I have all these dancers who are over 40 years of age, who are never going to dance again on Broadway unless I do this show. That's and great. no matter what I do next, everybody wants a chorus line too. Right. And I'm I'm financing with my own money, so no one's going to get hurt. That's great. Yeah. We could go on all afternoon. This is great, <laughs> but we've come to the end of this. Thank oh, yeah. you, Robin. Oh. This has been spectacular. <laughs> oh, thank, thank you very you. much. Oh, good. I hope it, it helps someone. Yeah. The American Theatre Wing's Guide to Careers in the Theatre is a project of the American Theatre Wing and the New York Public Library's Billy Rose Theatre Collection, Theatre on Film and Tape Archive.